This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the 80s and MSPs. Matt Amatich came to the conclusion that the 80s has overstayed its cultural welcome and should go away and leave us all alone. So what will fill the gap? Does that mean we're all set for a 90s revival? And also, actually, today is my last episode with Matt. And uh, actually, 90s is my favourite uh, you know, when we look back at, you know, throughout the years, I think I've got a lot of memories simply because I, you know, I was born in 86, but I grew up in the 90s. But Matt, do we need another revival? Hey, Jeff. And yeah, it's really sad that this is your, your last show. That's why we're doing a 90s revival this week. So, um, you know, going out on, uh, on your cultural high. <laughs> um, no, you know, one of the conclusions we reached on that uh, show we did about the 80s was you know pretty much to the effect that I don't think we do need another revival so hopefully by throwing all the kind of gen x and gen y contaminated stuff out the window it will leave the uh the the gen z's and the gen a's to um the the space they need to create something that doesn't maybe reference star wars as its starting point um we have seen i think a mini spike over the last couple of years in terms of TV revivals. Uh, Friends has been one of the most streamed shows of the past couple of years. And we've seen shows like the short-lived Roseanne reboot. I think Will and Grace has come back. Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, 90210. And of course, we've had a new kind of uh, Jumanji and Jurassic Park movies. Plus, of course, there's plenty of 90s music still hanging around. So, you know, the 90s is very much alive and well. Mm. So what is it doing here today? Well, you know, as we mentioned on the the on well on that 80s show, the 80s for me was kind of that proto digital decade. It laid the framework for the digital world that we're enjoying 20 years later. Yet when we look back at the 90s, the two things that uh, uh, that people kind of pick out are well, one grunge, uh, Nirvana obviously, and one of the others is uh, as friends as I mentioned. So, like we said, as it's your last appearance on the show, I thought we'd go for your defining decade, the 90s. And, you know, for those of you who might be wondering where Jeff is going, he's relocating to one of Culture Pop's retirement communities where he can uh, keep fit with some light, hands-on cobalt mining classes during the day and use the clear mountain air to clear his black lung at night. So the 90s is a bit of a going away present for, for Jeff. But I'm going to start. Um, you know, as you said, you grew up in the um, in the 90s. It's kind of that defining cultural decade for you. What does it actually mean to you? What does the 90s mean to you? Wow. Um, it, it just shaped me. The music shaped me a lot. I think, you know, I for me if I had to pick out one item that really helped me to go through like my teenage years, uh, it was it was the music scene. And, I, and I, I'm yet to find any kind of uh, hook uh, in today's society uh, with whether it's music, whether it's gaming, whether it's movies that really helped me can, you know, help me to like define myself. Uh, music in the 90s, it's still like, you know, top 10 in my Spotify, you know, uh, top 10 playlist or even the top 100. 90% of them actually come from, you know, 90s music. So for me, I think just being able to relive some of those memories, uh, I think, yeah, the music for me was just 
something else. You mentioned Nirvana, man. That's on my repeat every oh, yeah. single week. Well, let's you know, let let let's kind of mark you. What what are the artists that are on that Nirvana. playlist for you? Uh, Nirvana, um, you know, and then later on, of course, you know, with uh, Foo Fighters. But Radiohead, like you know, I'm the I'm a massive Radiohead fan. Uh, I know I've got like every single vinyls and stuff like that. Um, Radiohead was for me. I think I related to it. Um, and and that was for me. I think the hook. I could relate to so much of the '90s. Maybe it's because I grew up in the '90s. But I could relate to you know so much of the cultural references that now you know when I watch like Community for example that's on you know Netflix. A lot of the references like you know it's it it has that '90s vibe to it. Uh, you know, I don't remember many TV shows. Um, you know, but but I think it's that being able to, you know, feel like I was part of it, uh, just makes me um, feel. Um, I don't know. Like it's 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 just warming. And what about what about the kind of gadgets and stuff? Is that where kind of tech Jeff started? Was it kind yeah. of the '90s where where you became um, gadget geeky <laughs> nerd Jeff? Uh, I don't think it was the 90s. I think it was the early 2000s. But, um, you know, I remember playing around with Macromedia Flash, uh, you know, and, and taking hours to design uh, a ball jumping you know, up and down on a blank piece of paper using Macromedia Flash. And, you know, achieving that was huge success. Like, you know, I got so excited and I you know wanted to show my parents and stuff and uh, being able to hack into like, uh, and I say hack in brackets, uh, uh, hack into like, uh, you know, my, my computer, uh, the computers in my, in my school uh, with, you know, running Windows 95. Uh, there was some running Windows 3.1 still. Uh, yeah, like I think that was the time where I just love, you know, being able to do naughty things uh, on, on computer <laughs> hardware. <laughs> And and of course, designing that uh, that thing in Flash, a ball jumping up and down and going nowhere, kind of trained you for being on this show. <laughs> I guess so. If you put it that way, that was my uh, you know the, the the founding moments of this show. But you know, I th- I think you know one of the 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 weird things, and it comes out from what you were saying as well, is that we don't really have a firm grasp of what the '90s was beyond uh, the the kind of stereotypes that that we often discuss. So, you know, when you picture the 90s, you uh, sorry, the 60s rather, you have the kind of groovy James Bond, miniskirts, Beatles and Paisley image. Uh, obviously, you've got that backdrop of civil rights protests and uh, and hippies. Uh, the 70s is kind of long hair and flares. You know, there was a lot of uh, economic decline and strikes. Good decade for me, do me decade. Um, the 80s, of course, was that material greed decade. We had, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the triumph of capitalism and, you know, a very kind of bright, shiny pop culture. Um, and, you know, obviously, those are all stereotypes. They're all very unrealistic, you know, encapsulations of of what those times actually were. Mm. Do any of these subsequent generations have those defining characteristics? I think so. But um, we have to look a little bit harder. I mean, similar to what you were saying about um, you kind of coming of age tech wise in the in the noughties uh, the noughties was very much kind of web 2.0 it was social media it was the smartphone uh the aughts which has to be the worst name for a decade ever conceived i, I still prefer the the teens uh was the first um real kind of there's an app for that always on decade uh and that was you know where we first saw streaming displacing downloads but I think the 90s is a lot harder to pin down. Um, from my memories, you know, it kind of all looked like 
Claire Danes and Jared Leto in my so-called life. Um, and I can imagine you were wearing that, uh, uh, those kind of plaid shirts and everything going, going for that look as well. Uh, so, you know, the, the early part of the decade was very much that kind of extension of the 80s. Uh, and then we had that transitional uh, phase with Nirvana and that whole weird thing of wearing skirts with pants, which I never quite understood. Uh, then, you know, the, the second half was really where we got into this digital era, the mobile phone, the internet, uh, the millennium bug, of course. Um, and a lot of that is more closely linked to uh, to the 21st century, the noughties. Mm. Now, you mentioned on the 80s episode that the 90s was much more important to you than the 80s. Well, absolutely. I mean, I was 18 in uh, 1990. Uh, and in the UK, there was an explosion of music and club culture, which coincided with me heading off to university and actually missing most of it. Um, but that was, you know, also where I met my first Malaysians and made the fateful decisions that would eventually bring me to to moving to this country. Uh, but, you know, I, I made a rally. I was in London for the whole kind of Britpop explosion. And I remember it as being a really exciting time. Um, but again, maybe everyone feels that about their early to mid 20s when, you know, they've left home and they're figuring out who and what they're supposed to be. Uh, but one of the things um, that we mentioned in the 80s episode was that uh, back then you made all of your plans with people on landlines. You had to do it ahead of time. So this was kind of the first uh, swing in the 90s of these impromptu meetups. Uh, you'd get a call or a text on your mobile phone on the tube or even the bus. Um, someone saying, you know, fancy a drink or a bite to eat in half an hour. And you'd be off. So, you know, there was a lot of that kind of dynamic energy going around. Mm. What was your first phone, Matt? My first phone. It was an Orbital 902, um, probably back in 1994 or 95. And the weirdest thing is, I don't even need to think twice to recall the model number. I can't remember the model numbers of pretty much any other phone that I've had. Uh, the phone that everyone wanted back then was the uh, the, the Motorola StarTac, which had the the really cool flip. I, and I think had it could those. store like. Oh, you did. Yeah. Oh, so so <laughs> '90s Jeff was cooler than '90s Matt. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know the, the the phones then. You know you you'd get like an eight to twelve hour battery life, um, and then you'd have to charge it for eight hours on trickle charge. Uh, after the Orbital, I think I had a couple of um, orange branded phones, but from then on, it was mostly Ericsson's. Mm. And the functionality really didn't change too much. It wasn't really what we were looking for back then. We were looking for smaller, lighter. Um, there were no cameras, pretty much no mobile web. Uh, the biggest innovation really was Snake when it came to the, the Nokia 6110 in uh, 1997. Now, were you an early Mac user? Well, Macs were, you know, kind of in that parallel universe. So I had a flatmate with a Mac and it looked really weird and difficult to use. At work, we used a stock control system that I'm assuming was based on DOS, either that or it was created out of nothing. I don't know. It was very much Microsoft's world. Um, and I actually had to take out a loan to buy my first uh, PC, which was unbranded it was a, a a generic box pc the brands were too expensive well not exactly you know apart from uh the macs the brands were a lot less ubiquitous uh web hosting companies were 
you know, the startups of their day, and they were often hyper-local. I think I've mentioned on the show before, uh, my first uh, internet connection was with a dial-up service run by an expat Malaysian in the UK called Vampire Internet, and my email address was matt at vampire.co.uk. And finally, we have proof. He denies it almost every week, but now we are certain that Matt is a vampire. When we come back, tech that made the 90s great. BFM 89.9. Benchmark for Managers. BFM 89.9. And we're back. It is Fun Friday. My name is Jess Andrew, together with Culture Pop's Matt Amatech. Matt, we're back in the 90s today, a place where it seems Matt never really left. Well, uh, you know, I've been in Malaysia since the the end of the 90s. So my entire experience of the uh, 21st century has actually been a Malaysian one. So before the break, I mentioned that the 90s is a little bit hard to define. So I did pretty much what uh, I would have done back then. And I turned to slacker writer extraordinaire Douglas Copeland, uh, the, the man who pretty much defined Generation X in his novel of the same name. And it's weird because he said pretty much the same thing as me, that the 90s seemed uh, a little bit blank, uh, not in the sense that nothing happened, but it was a story waiting to be written, a story that would be very different from the generations that came before. And his memories of it seem to be similar to mine, albeit from uh, perspectives, you know, thousands of kilometers apart, in that we both felt that it was um, a good decade, a decade of hope. In terms of idealism? Uh, not really. You know, we were still seeing the old capitalist structure enriching the many rather than the few. Uh, computers and mobile phones were becoming cheap and affordable. So there was a sense of the democratization of technology. Uh, email meant that you could be in touch with colleagues all over the country and the world. There was this feeling of uh, potential, this idea of bringing people together. And the internet? It was this incredibly slow thing that loaded up web pages uh, created by, uh, well, the colorblind. I mean, if anyone remembers like, the early AOL and uh, other places, uh, you know, there was no sense of uh, readable fonts. It's no wonder that um, the early portals and e-commerce sites failed because it would take you half an hour just to download line by line a 100 kilobyte JPEG. So the idea of buying online in the, the, the mid-1990s, you could probably drive your car to the store, shop, stand in line to pay, and drive home in the time it took the site just to load up on your computer. Not to mention the cost. You know, in the dial-up days, you paid for your internet by the minute, which is why, you know, when Amazon started, it didn't look like the world-conquering sure thing that it's become to today. It's hard to imagine going online being expensive today. Well, I'm sure you remember your own adventures in, in dial-up, right? Yeah, just as you mentioned that term, the sound comes to my head. It's, it's engraved in my head and it's a nightmare uh, to hear it. I used to go to cyber cafes just because I couldn't stand my own dial-up at home. And of course, because, you know, the rest of the family wanted to use <laughs> the, the, the phone line, right? Yeah. Um, but if we... If we if we go back to the e-commerce, you know, those sites were places that you went to if you lived somewhere that didn't have bookshops or whatever it was that you were looking for online. It was very much a kind of last resort rather than a first call. And what about the tech itself? What were some of the most notable moments from the 90s? Well, we've mentioned, you know, the 
internet, affordable home computing, uh, mobile phones. Um, you mentioned music, and I'm a music guy as well. Uh, this was the first portable digital music decade. Uh, CDs, of course, had already been around since the mid-1980s. And the first Sony Discman uh, actually came out in 1984. But by the 90s, uh, the technology was good enough that they weren't just portable, they were actually mobile. Mm. Because the early Discmans all skipped if you tried to walk with them. Uh, as the decade progressed, they went from something that you took out of a suitcase and put on a tabletop to something that you could listen to while you were walking, and then eventually became something that you could wear while jogging. Of course, the drawback is that the CD is pretty substantial when it comes to size, so no matter how much you slimmed and trimmed the player, it was never going to be as tiny or as easy to carry around as a, as a cassette Walkman. Until? I'm really going to miss you setting these lines up for me. You know, if you survive, and I mean, if you come back uh, <laughs> from the retirement camp, you know, we're going to have to bring you back as a, a guest. Yeah, so, you know, the music industry came up with uh, an idea for digital compact music. Digital compact cassette? Uh, that's not the one I was going to mention. That was a, a Philips-led system that didn't really take off. I was going to mention another Sony-led system, the Minidisc, mm. which were basically just mini CDs. But what was really cool about them was that you could actually record onto them. And then we went to solid state. Well, you know, we'll skip the uh, CDR because um, partly because there's no time and also because I'll come back to it in the future. Uh, so, yeah, this is where the digital revolution started. The first MP3 players, uh, the, the, the first true forerunners of the iPod, uh, debuted in uh, 1997. It was the Korean-made uh, Iger FP-Man M10 and M20, which had a massive uh, maximum of uh, 64 megabytes of flash memory. 32 megabytes was uh, about the norm. So you could get between half and a whole album's worth of songs on the thing. Um, and you had to painstakingly transfer them via the parallel port on your uh, computer. So, you know, it was like a megabyte an hour. I mean, it was really, really slow. Um, but this is where we first started to see music downloading. Uh, it's hard to imagine how much conversation uh, there was about file sharing in the late 90s and early 2000s. Now, not that I'm advocating it, uh, you can torrent a movie and be streaming it within a few seconds. But back then, it might take you all night to illegally transfer a single Britney track. Britney? Well, just because Oops, I Did It Again and uh, Good Old Limp Biscuit became synonymous with peer-to-peer -peer file sharing uh, through sites like uh, Napster. And what was Napster? Well, Napster was uh, another one of those college dorm brainchild things. It was created by uh, two Seans, Sean Fanning and Sean Parker. Uh, it was a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing network that was optimized for sharing music files. So, of course, we mentioned torrents. If you're familiar with those, then you already understand how this works. It was a decentralized network and you actually download your files direct from the sharer's hard drive. Now, obviously, the music industry hated Napster, just as the TV and film industries would grow to hate file sharing networks as broadband spe uh, speeds increased. Mm. The music companies eventually litigated Napster out of existence. Mm. I actually can still remember the logo and it was such an innovation, actually, Napster. But, you know, not that we endorse file sharing. No, because um, artists deserve to uh, get paid, including us. Uh, what was notable for me was that Napster was launched in 1999, and, and that was around the same time that Microsoft and Yahoo 
launched their Messenger products. So don't forget that these were the days before Google was everywhere. I mean, the company only started in uh, uh, 1998. So it's hard to believe that the internet once existed without Googling. I was still asking Jeeves uh, (laughs) at that point. Uh, There had been uh, other chat tools before, IRC most notably, but Yahoo and uh, MSN gave away free email accounts, uh, MSN with their Hotmail service. So their chat services had that mass cross-platform audience. And along with those, um, you know, Napster was this kind of proto-social media service because you could chat with the people that you were sharing your your content with. Mm. So it had those ideas of community-based uh, baked in. It was the forerunner for the, uh, the, the 21st century social media services like MySpace and Bebo and, of course, ultimately Facebook. Mm. Let's stick with the physical media for a minute. Okay, I'm way ahead of you. Um, Nintendo's Game Boy, uh, to bring a smile to everyone's face. There have been better handhelds, um, but probably none as uh, iconic. It was actually launched in, I think, uh, 1988 or 89, but I'm including it here because, you know, it was this archetypal 90s site. It wasn't smartphones you saw on public transport. It was the Game Boy. And there's... Uh, you know, the, the, it had a lot of classic titles, but the only one you actually needed was Tetris, a game that I'm still playing today. Uh, physically today, I actually played an app clone uh, this morning before I came on to this, this show. So the 90s were good for gaming, I think, in general, for a lot of uh, consoles. The original PlayStation and, of course, uh, uh, the game-changing game Wipeout with its techno soundtrack and its tie-in CD compilation, all products of the 90s. The rise of the first-person shooter in the form of uh, uh, Castle Wolfenstein and, of course, the the classic Doom, uh, IDKFA. That's all I need to say. Um, One of my... All-time favorite games, Carmageddon, uh, which had no other purpose other than wanton carnage and running a car into zombies and cows, a genre that, of course, Grand Theft Auto would come to define in the 21st century. Mm. Now, we've talked about uh, phones. What about the smart? Well, it was the uh, the 90s, so you had your PDA. That was the smart part of the, the phone equation. You probably uh, had a Palm Pilot, uh, which already had really good handwriting recognition software 20 years ago. Uh, do you hear that, Apple? Uh, only introducing it with iOS 14 later this year. So you could uh, store your contacts, your notes, your reminders, and work on basic spreadsheets and text documents. Apple had the Newton in the 90s, which was a failed tablet that was actually pretty good. Um, and Nokia, of course, had the super swank communicator series that uh, that nobody could afford. And the uh, training tablet, of course, the Tamagotchi, one of the most insidious social experiments uh, ever to be undertaken in history. Hang on a minute. Social experiment? Look, a generation of teens woke up on Christmas morning 1996 and stared death in the face in the form of a little keyring sized machine with a tiny screen displaying a little creature. That screen was life. You know, they spent weeks and months nurturing this egg and the creature it became. They fed it, they stroked it, they parented it. And ultimately, we all failed. We had to watch these little creatures die. 
I wonder if any of those teens went on to have children. I think Tamagotchi may be the reason that I don't have kids because I tried and I failed. They all died time after time after time. A lot of them died within the first couple of hours. You know, now we complain that that friends are distracted with their phones. But in the 90s, people would break off from conversations because their Tamagotchis were beeping mm. and they would actually pull them out of their bags to, to feed them and try and keep them alive. I remember that. Now, I know there's a lot more you want to cover, but I really have to leave. I have no idea what to pack for the mines. Uh, you can pack whatever. Everything will be rags in days um, because of the uh, amount of fun you'll be having. Um I don't want to make the, the 90s a, a two-episode thing, so let's just outline a few of the outstanding scientific achievements of the, the 90s just really quickly. We still think of cloning as something new and cutting-edge, but the first cloned animal, Dolly the Sheep, was actually created in 1996. Uh, we're still discussing the ethics of that cloning nearly 25 years later. The first gene therapy treatment took place in 1990. Similarly, the Human Genome Project was launched in 1990 and the project was declared completed 14 years later in 2004. What about space? Well, uh, the next generation started broadcasting in... uh, 1987 and it wrapped up in 1994 uh, there were a whole bunch of other star trek spin-offs uh, like deep space nine throughout the 90s uh, the pathfinder rover landed on mars in uh, 1996 uh, in 2020 you know we're seriously or semi-seriously talking about colonizing mars so that's how far we've come from there uh, the x-files told us the truth was out mm. there and twin peaks may, made us realize that we wouldn't understand it if we found it uh, and of course the the hubble telescope was launched in 1990 and probably the biggest of them all the international space station became operational in 1996 mm. now uh, what have you forgotten uh, DVDs, um, the first time we got to see movies as they were intended to be seen. So, you know, this is what a treasure chest of beauties the 1990s were. So it really is no wonder that Douglas Copeland calls it the good decade. Indeed. Uh, anyways, you know, I, I've, I've, we'll be back with uh, Geek Squawks. But I have to say, Matt, uh, I absolutely love the 90s. Um, talking about X-Files and DVDs at the end, I actually have uh, a cupboard that has stacked nearly a hundred DVDs of all the X-File episodes. Um, so, you know, big fan of it. Can't, can't, can't remember when was the last time I actually checked on it because I'm sure it's all, check, you know, it's all gone. Check by them now. out. I've been, I know, I've been, I've been working through the episodes. The weirdest thing is they have that box format yeah. from, uh, from TV in the 90s. So on your big, your big screen TV, it's like, where's the rest of the picture gone? <laughs> Uh, that's all uh, for today's episode, uh, you know, and of course, this is the last bet- uh, between me and Matt. Uh, but Matt will be continuing on MSP uh, in the coming weeks. Of course, if you miss any parts of this show, you know where to find the podcast. You can download on the BFM website or the BFM app. My name is Jasandu. We'll be right back with Geek Squawks after this. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.